Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode, Understanding Generative AI with special guest Dr. Jeffrey Lancaster from Dell Technologies. Jeffrey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Darren. Hey, uh, we, we had an opportunity to talk and I just, um, I have a bro crush on you, as my wife would say, because I was talking afterwards. I was like, this Jeffrey guy, he understands all this really cool stuff about generative AI and all this. We got to talk some more. She was like, oh, you, you got to hurry and get you know this out of your system. But before we go there, Jeffrey, tell us a little bit about your background and where you're coming from and, and all that. I know enough to be dangerous, as, as I would say. So, you know, I, I have kind of a weird background, and I think that's why I'm so interested in emerging technologies. So my background is actually as a chemist. I uh, did my PhD in chemistry. Um, actually, as an undergrad, I also studied art and art history. So I have a background in sculpture, <laughs> art history, chemistry, kind of all over the place. Um, when I finished my PhD, I still wanted to be sort of involved in academia, but I didn't want the pressure of being an academic, you know, with capital A. So I became a librarian uh, at Columbia University. I was supporting science and engineering disciplines, uh, overseeing something called the Digital Science Center. So I got involved, so I was still involved in research. I was still helping faculty uh, kind of do what they were doing, but in a way that started to take me a little bit out of the day-to-day of uh, the scientific enterprise. I got a little fed up, admittedly, with how slowly higher ed moves. And so I left higher education, went to a startup uh, for a little while where I was teaching businesses about technology. So I would fly around the world. I would um, teach CEOs how to code, CMOs how to do data science, CISOs how to hack, things like that. And it was a really interesting time for me to both learn, but also quickly take my learning and kind of what was happening in current events and be able to translate that for an audience and specifically a business audience. And so a lot of that revolved around the question of, why should they care who at their organization is doing these things? And how do you go and have a good conversation with these people? And how do you know enough to ask the right questions? After doing that for a couple of years, um, I then joined uh, Dell Technologies, been with Dell for about three and a half years, a little over three and a half years, um, and joined Dell right before the pandemic. And so, you know, was oh, able that must to- be an interesting transition. Very, very interesting. You know, and to see kind of, in real time, how people were adapting, how we adapted as a company, um, but also how our customers were adapting. And so in my role now, I work with higher education institutions. I work with colleges and universities uh, in about the 13 states that I cover, I cover from Virginia all the way up to Maine. And we talk about anything from, at the time, their pandemic response or continuity planning. We'll talk about esports, the classroom of the future, DEI initiatives, sustainability initiatives, research, which uh, of course is a big focus area of mine how new technologies might be changing the way that they operate and thinking about, you know, how can they begin to build a culture where you don't necessarily uh, butt heads between innovation and security. And so how do you do that in a way which still is compliant within the organization, but allows you to move more quickly than some of the higher ed institution that I had been at where I ultimately felt like, you know, it just took forever to make a decision and to try something new and, and so how do you build that culture of innovation? So I have a question around that because yeah. 
I interviewed a, um, someone from uh, UVA mm-hmm. um, uh, in the business school, and we talked about COVID yeah. and the effects that COVID had on IT organizations and organizations in general mm-hmm. to innovate faster all of a sudden. Because we found in the first three weeks of COVID, everyone can move fast all of a sudden. Where before it was like, my five-year plan to move people to Office 365 and, and, and these big, huge, long, drawn-out, big, huge budget things that all of a sudden happened in three weeks at a fraction of the price. So we know that we can innovate. We know we can move fast. Sure. So why do you think or how can we keep that? That's uh, sustainability of speed you know, of innovation, or or should we even? Yeah, do? I think I think should we is a better question, and I think should we is a better question because you don't want to constantly be changing things because people get whiplash, right? And so the the shift to remote work, remote teaching, and remote learning was significant enough that people would tolerate um, doing something in a different way you don't normally have that tolerance from people and especially in academia. And, and, you know, I know we'll talk about state and local government. We'll talk about um, K-12 education. If you want to more often than not, people don't have a tolerance for that change. And so you really have to balance um, in higher ed, at least these ideas around shared governance, these ideas around making sure that people are involved and included in the decision-making, making sure that, um, people's voices are heard, which is really critically important when you're dealing with, you know, public initiatives. It's really important that you hear from whomever your customer is, whether that's the citizenry, whether that's students, whether that's faculty staff. And more often than not, the reason why these things take so long, it's not a technical reason why it takes so long. It's a cultural reason. That yeah, it takes oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Because you have to build up that momentum. And so with the pandemic, it was different for everybody. Everybody was like, yeah, absolutely. We need these things. And at the same time, you also had technology innovation moving really, really quickly. So you had Zoom, you know, really coming of age, which had been a tool that a lot of people were using, but it became the kind of de facto term for we're having a teleconference. You know, maybe some people said WebEx, maybe some people said Teams a little bit. No, but but Zoom became a verb. Zoom, we were going to yeah. Zoom, just like, you know, Kleenex is a tissue and uh, Q-tip uh, is a cotton swab. Like it became the name for the thing that we're doing now. Um, and so, you know, paired with that massive uptake, yeah, things moved really, really quickly. Now, as people move back to in-person education, there's no longer that need to move quickly. And so people have dialed it back a little bit. They've gotten back into committee work. They've gotten back into slower decision-making, which is frustrating for people on the industry side because they want to keep moving fast, selling big things, change, change, change. And that's not always how things work. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling that myself. And even inside our organization at Intel, we move so fast and now think the bureaucracy has set back in. That's right. Now things are slowing down again. And I think the CEOs are feeling some of that pain on getting people to come back to the office. Well, and, and another thing that happened, you know, along those lines was a lot of the CIOs that I talked to, they got a seat at the table of decision-making during the pandemic because yes, they, they did, yeah. there was the recognition that 
the role that they were playing was critically important to the success of the organization, to the success of the institution. They needed to know, do we have the IT capability? Can we do this in a secure way? You know, are we going to be able to handle the load of shifting everybody to this new way of doing things? Now, what has happened is that many of those CIOs maybe no longer have that same urgent seat at the table. And so there's some additional layers of bureaucracy, like you said, between the kind of organizational mission setting and now what is essentially a transactional function for a lot of people in IT, where it's keeping the lights on maintenance, you know, which has become deferred maintenance. It's um, doing more with less. It's having less budget. It's, you know, all of these factors, which are no longer the critically urgent thing that was, it's now back to reality. But I'm going to throw a kink in here. Yes. We have another potential black swan moment happening now. Sure. Which is generative AI. I think it's a huge, big deal. Some people think it's uh, progressive. I think it's way more than that. I think it's revolutionary. Um, so what do you think? Do you well, feel the same way or am I over-exaggerating it? Let me, let, me, let me pick at that for a second. So why do you think it's revolutionary? I, I, it, it just, it feels to me, and I know that's a weird thing. It feels to me like it was in the 90s. I was in Silicon Valley in the 90s. I, I graduated from, from college in 94, arrived in Silicon Valley in 94, 95. And it just feels like if you're not part of it, you're going to get rolled over. Sure. So, and, and it's not a company adopting it. Individuals are adopting it. So mm -hmm. to me, um, if an organization doesn't pick up on it, especially we, it's almost like a convert the perfect storm a convergence of, of ecosystems. I have people working at home. Mm -hmm. A lot of people still working at home. I now have generative AI out there that appears it's going to help me do my job more effectively or more efficiently. Mm -hmm. And I can get a lot more done in a smaller amount of time if I, if I take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And companies, I don't, they don't have the visibility that maybe they had before on their employees because they're not in the office. I just think all that happening together is going to cause this thing to, to just kind of spiral. I, I don't know. It just feels that way in my gut. Yeah. I mean, future, future prediction is always hard. Right. And so um, the way that I've been thinking about it lately is that it's generative AI itself is a class of tools yeah. and it depends on how you decide you want to use those tools. And do you want to use, other people's version of the tool? Do you want to build your own version of the tool? Where I think things are going, and again, this is why when I sort of was giving you a bit of my background, I was talking about the decision-making process around new technologies. I think the reason that a lot of businesses and a lot of um, public entities and a lot of other folks initially had a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction to it was, this is something new that has the potential to change everything. And does it? It may very well. But it's also something that a lot of people don't understand. And a lot of people don't understand what it can do, what it can't do, what it should do, and what it shouldn't do, really, you know, if you think about it. And so 
where where I find the interesting space right now is okay, we know this tool is out there, but organizations need to decide how they want to use a tool like that. Do we want to use it for our internal processes? Do we want to find operational efficiencies? Maybe. Do we want to use it to better engage with our customers, with our citizenry, with our students? Maybe. Do we want to make it so that people can find information more easily or so that they can do the work that they were doing more efficiently? Maybe. But then the, the counter question to that is always, well, what are they going to do with all that extra time? And so this is where it becomes a culture question again. If we say, okay, you know, you can use some of these tools and you get a 2x, 3x, 5x efficiency gain on writing emails or putting together um, documents or, you know, generating imagery, whatever that thing is, are you going to, as an organization, have fewer people employed? Well, that's really scary to people. Oh, are yeah. you going to give people more time for creative pursuits? Maybe. You know, are you going to expect more out of people? Are you going to change the metrics by which you're judging people? So there's a lot of things still at play and there's a lot of levers where organizations are having to make the decision. How do we want to bring this tool in and what impact is that going to have on the people that we have there now? Well, um, I, I like I like how you said what it's going to have an impact. Yep. Absolutely. I mean... And this this sounds kind of strange, but and you probably don't remember these days because you're younger than I am. I'm an old I'm an old man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm an old man, as as my kids will tell me. Um, there used to be before my time, there were typing pools. Yeah, where a whole bunch of people sat there and typed mm -hmm. memos. They listened and typed memos or handwritten shorthand. I don't know anyone that knows shorthand anymore, but that used to be a business class that you court, took. Court reporters. Court reporters still use shorthand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The, the court reporters, right? Um, there used to be stenographers. There used to be all, all these jobs. They've a lot of them have been replaced in a lot of there used to be a mail room. Yeah. In large corporations. There still are in some, but most don't have it anymore. Yeah. So the jobs shift and change. That happened over a long period of time, except when we we hit certain things. So it is going to impact, absolutely going to impact. So, so how, to what degree and how it's going yeah. to impact, I guess, is your choice as an organization? Well, and the examples that you mentioned are all about information transfer and knowledge transfer. Yeah. Right? And, and that's where this gets really interesting because, you know, you and I talked about this the other day. People who try to use these tools in the same way. So if you try to use ChatGPT in the same way that you use Google, you are going to be profoundly disappointed. Yes, I've already done that myself. <laughs> and a lot of people do. You know, they start off and they say, okay, I'm going to use this text interface and I'm going to ask it a question and I'm going to verify that it knows what it's talking about. So I'm going to ask it a question where I already know the answer. Now that's a Google type of question where there is a definitive sort of factual answer to something. Why generative AI is different and why it's exciting is that that question isn't really meant for generative AI. You know, what's the capital of insert name of country is not really the question that you want to ask generative AI. The question that you want to ask generative AI is, I'm going to be taking a vacation to that country and I want a five day itinerary 
where I make sure that I see museums and I eat, uh, you know, local authentic foods, can you put together an itinerary for me? That's a question. You can't Google that. You can maybe find examples that other people you, have done. Well, well, people that are really good at Google, yeah. Google that, but it takes half hour, hour, two hours to do because I'm Googling all these different places and reading reviews. And so it's not a single query, right? Right. right? Where Google is great where I ask a single query, I get something back. Then I use my brain, right? (laughs) To then process some of the information and ask more questions. So what you're saying is generative AI can take a more generalized concept and use its augmented reality or its augmented brain, whatever we want to call it. It's large language model. It's really what it is. Yeah. I always struggle because I'm like, on one hand, it's a next word predictor. All it's doing is it's saying, it's taking my question as an input. It's uh, trying to understand what I'm asking it for. And then it's going to predict what the next word in a response ought to be. And that's great. You know, and, and where I think this gets interesting for people is that, you know, that example that I just gave about making a travel itinerary, I might want the full knowledge of the World Wide Web to help me answer that question. You know, I want to know all the information that's out there, synthesized, brought together in a way that I can now tap into that. Where institutions and organizations will want something a little bit different is that they might want that answer to be contextualized to their local environment. And and this is where I think the power of it, because now, you know, these large language models are out there. Everybody doesn't have to go and do that again. That, That tool already exists. But what we may want to do is we may want to put our own skin onto that tool. Maybe we want to paint it our own color or whatever we want. But in the context of this, it would be, how can I ask that itinerary question in higher education? It might be for your course schedule. Well, if I'm going to ask it to help me put together a course schedule, I don't want it pulling courses from Harvard if I'm going to Columbia. From other institutions, exactly. I want it to know this is my institution. The information that you're getting is only from this institution. And so it's a bit of a walled garden at that sense. But what's great about it for technology companies and other people is that each individual context needs its own individual environment in order to operate in. So that's very exciting for people like Dell and Intel, because it means we can sell more stuff. Well, we can sell more stuff, but we've got a bunch of these popping up all over. The cloud companies love it too, because some of these are going to be living in the cloud. Um, but it means that to contextualize that information really increases the value of it for the people who are searching for that information. And so to do that, that's why it's a game changer, because you can now layer this ability to do sort of natural language generation with contextualization. So the contextualization, is, is that easy to do? Is that going to be easy for me, a Darren Pulsifer to go and say, I'm going to create the same thing that ChatGPT or Google Bard have done on my computers that I have in my data center. Can I do that easily? Easy is relative, you know, and and easy is is hard because it depends on what Darren knows. It depends on what Darren's done before. I think that for people who are um, versed in kind of stitching together a constellation of different tools, it's not going to be any different. So tapping into a large language model is not going to be substantially different than tapping into 
deep learning models or TensorFlow models or other things that they may have done before, the skill set is going to be about the same. Now, if okay. you're an institution that's never done that before, then no, it's then not the bar is higher. So, so the barrier to entry on this is not super high, right? Especially with with like Llama two coming out. Uh, yeah, I would say it depends. So Llama two, great example. You know, Meta essentially saying, "Hey, everybody can take our large language model and use it for free," and, that, and that's great. The language model itself doesn't really get you to the end goal, which is being able to spit back useful information to somebody. So where where what we're seeing a lot of really is that companies are now injecting this stuff into the tools that already exist. So you see Microsoft injecting it into Office 365. You see Turnitin injecting it into their tool. You see it, you know, all of these different people that you, people may already be doing business with now saying, well, we've got generative AI built in now. And on the one hand, you say, great, I don't need to go and implement anything because it's already there. And somebody who knows more about it than me put it in there. But the question that I always ask is, does an organization have a framework where they can start to say, well, this is how we want people to interact with it. This is where we want our data to live. Are we contributing things back to this vendor's model or is everything say, staying safe and secure in our own instance? In our own, in our own instance. And if you're not asking that question, you're missing out on a huge really security hole because you're not going to be able to control how people use it. So you're not going to necessarily be able to say, hey, don't copy and paste PII data or HIPAA data into this tool and have some detector that says, oh, that's PII, you shouldn't be sending this out to the large language model. Maybe you could do that, but still. So you've got to have some, I think, um, thought put into how people are gonna use it and where that data is living before you get to the question of, is it gonna be easy or not? Because depending on what data you're using, it might get harder and harder and harder, depending on what you wanna do. Okay, so to me, this sounds like the CDO, your chief data officer, and the strategic data um, governance plan has to be in place in order to really um, let this thing fly in your organization, right? Because yeah. if not, you're starting to lose um, data. Your intellectual property uh, will, will start going out the door. Well, and it's a hard thing too because it's not any single person's responsibility. So you, you do see some job postings for a chief AI officer and things like yeah, that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I, you know, when I think about where that person lives, they're living at the intersection of a couple of different jobs and, and sort of functional areas. They're living data, you mentioned. They're living at the center of security. They're living at the center of user interface and user experience. They're living at the center of infrastructure and you know things that might historically fall under the IT organization and the chief information officer, um, they might also be, uh, you know, having as a customer, and again, I think about higher education. So, you know, maybe your customer service people, maybe your alumni engagement people, maybe your teaching and learning people. There's a lot of different parts of an organization that could potentially leverage these technologies. And so it's not just a build it and people are going to figure it out, but it is a, you know, probably mediated process to get to whatever that um, ultimate conversational interface is going to look like.
Do you think that um, generative AI is scary for a lot of higher ed? Is it, I mean, because there's a lot of unknown, mm-hmm. right? And there's a whole thing around, and, and I'll have I'll have someone come on next week and talk about this and an yep. English professor um, at the university level. Mm-hmm. How do I how do I deal with generative AI and who owns the work? I mean, I, there's there's a lot of questions around this, right? Is it okay for me to use generative AI in making my emails look better or to making my presentation more presentable? Um, is it like a ghostwriter? You know, if I'm writing a book, yeah. there's all these weird things that are now popping up. Well, thank goodness for academia on, on you know, to find the answers to these questions because the initial reaction of academics was, no, don't use it. Kids are going to use it to cheat, right? And you saw this in New York City. You saw this in yeah. certain countries. Like, oh, this is a tool for people to cheat. What has happened since then is that wave kind of crashed and subsided. And in higher education, at least, there's a lot of people that are saying, well, how can we now use this to help prepare our students for the world that they're going to be going out into? Because you, you know, you can't ignore it. And I think that's why earlier when you said like, this is a big watershed moment, it's because you can't ignore what the potential for something like this is. So academia is really good about understanding citation, understanding information management. That's my librarian hat on again. It's really good at understanding what the social impacts of things are going to be. It's really good at understanding um, kind of workforce trends as uh, industries are starting to evolve and change. And so if, if we operate under the assumption that students of today are going to be needing to use these tools as part of their jobs tomorrow, then they should be getting trained in not just how to use them, but how do I judge whether um, something that's presented as a fact is actually a fact? How do I you know, investigate something to make sure that um, it's believable? Do I just accept a citation or do I actually go and look at that citation and see if I critically understand it the same way? And this has gotten a lot of people in trouble because today generative AI can fabricate citations. You know, you saw this with some legal cases and sort of some fake um, legal citations. And so not until a certain point did anybody actually go and look up that case law or look up the references or look up whatever it is. And so I think what it's causing is it's causing people to start to say, okay, I can use this tool to help me write in the style of something authoritative. And that's very powerful. And that helps get you to authoritative much more quickly. So I can say, write this in the style of a chemistry article, write this in the style of, you know, um, a preprint. Behavioral science, dissertation, whatever. whatever, But when it gets to that point, now my critical brain has to pop in and I have to say, okay, is this actually, I have to do the human bit of work, which is, is this what I actually want it to be? I have to go in and edit. I have to go and make it my own so that it's because the technology is not at the point where you can 100% trust it yet. It's not. Do do you think it will ever get to the point where I can 100% trust it? I think because I, I, I get, I've been taking some classes because uh, I'm working on my dissertation right now. And the classes, I have to become a certified researcher. Okay. Um, so I've taken some classes on the ethics of research. Mm-hmm. 
And some fascinating things have popped up. Uh, several case studies on people fabricating yeah. fabricating stuff and falsifying records and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Humans, we we should already be using our critical mind to question whether something is real or not, right? Yeah. Um, and just because it comes from an AI doesn't mean we can trust it. Just like if just because it comes from my professor at the university doesn't mean yeah. I necessarily should trust it. I should check, right? Yeah. So I think that critical thought has always supposed to be there, mm -hmm. but now it sounds like it, you have to ramp it up even more. I mean, let's let's agree that humans are inherently lazy, right? And we're always kind of looking oh, yeah. for the easiest path towards something. And the reason that generative AI is so interesting is because it presents an easy path toward things that are very difficult or time consuming, writing articles, you know, that, that to be honest, not a lot of people find joy in and not a lot of people spend their free time doing these things. There are some people that do, but yeah, 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 yeah. It, it's things that I think as humans, we find cumbersome. And so is there an additional layer of responsibility put on an author who uses these tools to verify? Absolutely. Is there an additional layer of responsibility put on a reader who's looking at these tools? Absolutely. And there are some things which are coming out, which are going to help with that, which, you know, is either going to be a citation, let's say for, um, for text, maybe a, a watermark in an image or, you know, metadata embedded into things so that you can start to see. There's some interesting tools that I've seen at, at Columbia coming out of the School of Journalism which have to do with, um, there's a whole project uh, for, about how Wikipedia pages are edited. And so you can start to see what the history of a text- of the pages are and who's making the changes. And... Who made the change, was things, were things added, were things removed. And I don't think it's gonna be that long until you be able to essentially toggle a text document to see, okay, which of these bits were generated by, let's say ChatGPT yeah, or Bard or something else. And which bits did the human go back in and actually craft themselves that's a so like a deep fake i mean intel's got some great technology around deep fake for videos and images we're going to start seeing the same thing for text because there's certain patterns i've already noticed chat gpt has a certain way of talking that's right um, it's got a voice right? um and and i think that's going to value the human voice even more because you'll could you could you feed in all of darren's writing and have chat gpt write in the style of darren you actually could sure. and yeah. you know but still, you know, you need that initial kind of training corpus to get there. Um, but I, I do think we're going to find that instead of devaluing the human as part of the process, I think what this is going to do is it's going to make it more clear which part the human should be spending time on and which part, you know, can be kind of shortcut. This, this is totally fascinating. Obviously, uh, Jeffrey, we need to have you come back on the show. Anytime you want. Um, absolutely. In fact, we're going to do it. We talked about it. We're going to do a series. Yeah. yeah you and I, we're going to do a series on generative AI. We're right at the cusp of this thing. So, uh, Jeffrey, thanks for coming on the show today. You got it. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, Give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.